picture yourself probably about 200 years from now, you're on your deathbed and you're like looking back at your life and you don't say like, did I have an engaging life? That's not what we're looking for, right? You think about, was I fulfilled? Did I have great relationships? Did I leave the world better than I found it? Did I challenge myself and act courageously or did I sort of operate not fully as myself during my lifetime? Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. Besides having a fun disposition and being incredibly charming, my next guest, Aaron Hurst, is driven and on a mission to, as he says, awaken the lions so that they can find their pride. This social entrepreneur has found his purpose and has undertaken the challenge of helping people identify their intrinsic motivators that help them to find fulfillment in their work. According to Aaron, Work isn't working. Fret not, this problem solver's on it and has founded the company Imperative, a peer coaching platform that dramatically improves the way people build their work relationships through peer coaching that ultimately leads to exponential returns for both the individual and their respective organizations. At the root of our conversation was how paramount relationships are, our need for psychological safety, and how, without being self-aware, it's going to be difficult to identify your purpose. We also cover other topics like how millennials are having less sex and why diversity and inclusion programs aren't working. If you're interested in the future of work or just any kind of personal development in general, then you're going to want to tune into this conversation. So please do so and join me while you kick back and enjoy my conversation with Aaron Hurst. So we are rocking and rolling. Aaron, thank you for being in the house. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. It's taken me, I think it's been about a year since I read that article that you posted in July of 2018. I read that article. I was immediately impressed. I'd reached out to your team, your fabulous team, by the way, who I, I have to give a shout out to, to Courtney, Aaron, and Mary. I know your team's bigger than that, but they're who I've mainly interacted with. Uh, definitely the gold standard. Remarkable, remarkable women. Give a quick synopsis about who you are and, and your company imperative. Quick synopsis. All right. Because um, we are going to delve. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a social entrepreneur. I think that's sort of the easiest way I describe who I am, which really means I love to create organizations that are first and foremost about social impact, like how to actually solve a problem in the world. And my first venture, sort of a significant venture, was called the Taproot Foundation. The organization I started back in 2001 with a sort of simple insight, which was nonprofit organizations. And I'm sure you've worked with a number of nonprofits doing such important work, but they just don't have the marketing, the tech, the HR, the finance resources that companies take for granted and realize that there was an opportunity to take the pro bono ethic that had been part of the legal profession. You all think about lawyers doing pro bono work, but what about marketers? What about technologists? What about HR professionals? Are they doing pro bono work? Is that something that could be harnessed to help nonprofits? And started Taproot to really build a marketplace for pro bono service. And we scaled that around the country and ultimately around the world, helping people truly give sort of of their talents. And 
through that process, I really learned sort of what work is at its most noble, right? Because you think about these pro bono teams, someone's working about 50, 60 hours a week. And then on top of that, they're doing five hours of volunteering with strangers for an organization. They're not getting paid for it. They're often paying out of pocket for travel, other things. You start to really understand like what work really should be. And I realized that there was an opportunity not just to fix volunteerism and help nonprofits with their core capacity needs, but to actually take what we had learned and figure out how do we fix work itself? Because work isn't working. The majority of people are unfulfilled at work. And I've been on a journey now for about six years, really working on this challenge of how do we make work fulfilling? Now that we have new neuroscience insights, positive psychology insights, we have technology that we never had before, can we actually do better? And we've had some really exciting progress on that front, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But that's really who I am, sort of the journey I'm on. My purpose, because we help people define their purpose, is to awaken lions so they can care for their pride. So for me, it's all about helping people find their courage inside themselves so that they can care for each other. So you mentioned fulfillment. How would you define the difference between fulfillment and engagement? And I appreciate you asking that question. Because I think a lot of people, in the last 30 years, we've been talking about employee engagement. Gallup sort of created this concept and has been pushing it and pushing it. And it was a good sort of step past the idea of just employee satisfaction. But employee engagement is about discretionary effort. It's basically treating people as a human resource. And if you have this resource, this human being, how do you get as much discretionary effort as possible? So how do you optimize that resource? It's a very management and sort of functionally oriented approach to talent, where talent is dehumanized. Fulfillment, on the other hand, is actually, if you look at it from a human standpoint, what do we want out of work? We want to be fulfilled, right? We want to actually have great relationships. We want to feel like we're making an impact. We want to be growing. These are the things as human beings that we want. And it's like one of the most simple ways to talk about it is picture yourself probably about 200 years from now, you're on your deathbed and you're like looking back at your life and you don't say like, did I have an engaging life? That's not what we're looking for, right? You think about, was I fulfilled? Did I have great relationships? Did I leave the world better than I found it? Did I challenge myself and act courageously? Or did I sort of operate not fully as myself during my lifetime? That's what matters to us. And there's a couple of things that make it really fundamentally different. One is when you ask people, who's responsible for your engagement? The answer is the organization and your manager. That's generally how we talk about it. If you ask people, who's responsible for your fulfillment? The answer is I'm responsible for my own fulfillment. So by shifting to this language around fulfillment, we're doing something really important, which is we're recognizing the fact that we each need to own our own journey, that we're not victims, that we need to think about how fulfilled are we and what are the changes I need to make to make myself fulfilled. And the organization's role then becomes, how do we build capacity in people? How do we help them develop the skills where they can do that for themselves? So it helps us move beyond this paternalistic, hierarchical sense of organizations and actually make it human-centered. Can I play devil's advocate? Yes, you for can. For a little bit? So first of all, I agree. Yeah. Like, I think Great devil's it. advocate so far. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let me let me really challenge you hard on that one. So, okay, so that sounds very pie in the sky ish. If I'm being a cynic, and Why? you know, the economy is well, because let's find fulfillment, and because the economy's strong right now, and as an employee, you can it's an employer's market, if you will. So, these are things that the companies are having to do to attract people to help them find the fulfillment. But at the end of the day, it's the companies that are writing the checks. Where's the balance between, hey, yeah, we need to hire you and bring you in and we're, it's our jobs to, or I guess my question is, is it our job as an owner to make the employee fulfilled or is it the employee's job to perform really well and hopefully find fulfillment during that? So many pieces to that. Uh, I just want to lay them out. So I think the first point you made 
the labor shortage that we have now, even if we go into a significant recession, like we're projected to have labor shortages, like basically as far as we can see down the horizon, there's such a shortage of labor that it's going to be an employee's market probably for the rest of our lives. Like that's really sort of the nature. It might go up and down a little bit, but we're- Even with AI? Yes, even with AI. They're just forecasting like just incredible labor shortages across the board. And there's been study after study sort of pointing to that. So I think we just have to accept that the go forward strategy for an organization needs to be one on which it's human centric. I just think it's absolutely vital and sort of thinking that's going to go away is not going to be a winning proposition. So that's sort of point one. So you think that if you're looking at kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. we're really going to stay at the top? A whole nother sort of yeah, diatribe. Right. Maslow's, like, Maslow's, so, um, <laughs> you know, like, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is yeah. accurate in a lot of ways, yeah. but it comes out of a scarcity mindset. Some people operate out of fear, in which case Maslow's hierarchy is very accurate. A lot of people, even in very poor, very challenging situations, actually have an abundance mindset, in which case that whole paradigm of Maslow's hierarchy doesn't actually work. You see people who are barely able to survive that are deeply fulfilled and who are reaching sort of those highest levels of Maslow's hierarchy. I think we tend to reinforce this classism idea with Maslow's hierarchy that you can't possibly be fulfilled. You can't possibly like focus on relationships if you're just sort of barely trying to survive. And we've just seen over and over again, like incredibly poor communities that are much more fulfilled than an American business boardroom. So I just, I think it's important to sort of challenge that. That's a great point and well noted. <laughs> yep. So I think the labor shortage, I think will continue. I do think it's the employee's responsibility, but I think what we've seen in our studies is that when people are fulfilled at work, we're seeing longer tenure, we're seeing better performance, we're seeing better employee net promoter scores. So people are being ambassadors for their brand. And you're likely seeing better customer service because people are showing up that way, more collaboration. Like there's incredible business benefit. It's not a sort of zero sum game. It's like you're fulfilled or you're productive. It's actually fulfillment and productivity are so intertwined because when you're bringing your full self to work, the employer is getting a lot more out of that and you're getting a lot more out of it. Yeah. There was a, a great white paper that your company put together that I thought was, there were a lot of good statistics that I gleaned from it. But one in particular, I think that drove home was the point about if people aren't fulfilled, yeah. it, you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. If they finish my sentence and uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, we looked at this question about, yeah. I think one of the things about work that's been, and I'm going to talk more about this, but this whole idea of like work-life balance and what do you need from work? What do you, can you get from life? And there's been this long sort of ongoing sort of philosophy for many people that work doesn't have to be your source of fulfillment. You can get fulfillment in a lot of other ways outside of work. Like don't put all that pressure. For some people, a job is just a job. So we wanted to look at that and see if that's true. And what we found in the study is that of people who are fulfilled in life, so they would say, I am fulfilled in life, only 1% of those people are unfulfilled at work. And this is a population of people who are working full-time. So obviously if you don't work, different statistic, but if you're working full-time, it's almost statistically impossible to be fulfilled in life if you're not at work. And it's not just because work takes up such a large part of our lives. It's more that mindset is at play and it's whether or not you're generally approaching your life with an ability to create fulfillment for yourself no matter where you are or not. And I think we're, we're doing a better job, but in general, like our schools, et cetera, are not helping us develop the skills to meet that need for ourselves. And we're putting more and more of that pressure on organizations, et cetera, to do that. And I'm just a strong believer in the fact like every kid needs to enter school, leave school, like building that muscle to create fulfillment for themselves. Mm. Let's talk more about that muscle. How do they build that muscle? What are things that they can be doing to put them in the right trajectory? So I think the key thing to understand is like the word meaning. How does one create meaning? 
And we tend to think like, what's a meaningful job versus an unmeaningful job, right? Being a teacher is a meaningful job. Being an accountant is a non-meaningful job. And that's just absolutely not the case. Meaning is something that's a human creation. No job, no one thing is meaningful or not meaningful. It's actually a human process of connecting two things together is where the meaning comes. Are you saying it's subjective or internal? It's not that it's subjective. It's internal process. So I'll give it to you like a very simple version of this thing about what meaning is. Think about the word woman and sort of all the things that come to mind when you think of the word woman, right? And what that means. So just, I won't have you say that because who knows where that's going to go, but let's just, you take that word. But then if you take away the ability to have any concept of a man in comparison, it's really hard to actually like articulate and give meaning to the word woman. And if you remove the idea of gender, the ability to actually have any meaning for the idea of woman is like basically almost completely goes away. Hmm. So things are only meaningful in context of other things. So it's all relative. It's not just, yeah, it's all relative, but it's also, it's a mental process of reflection. So you create meaning in your work when you stop and you pause and you give it meaning by connecting it to something that's important to you, connecting it to something you did in the past, connecting it to some other event. It's that connection to something else. That space between those two things is that meaning creation. And I think in our current world where engagement is sort of the dominant culture and it's a culture of busyness, we don't create time for reflection and we don't practice that reflection. So even if you're spending all day saving, burning babies, you may not find any meaning in your work because you're not taking time to actually do that reflection. And going to your question around with kids, we need to help them do that kind of reflection constantly and appreciate meaning in little things instead of just trying to put this emphasis on bigger things or stating that some things are meaningful and others aren't. It's really something that we have to manufacture for ourselves. It's a very intentional effort. And I saw it a lot when we were doing Taproot and doing volunteering. Like a lot of people would volunteer and it wasn't meaningful to them. The people for whom it was meaningful were the ones, and we actually built this into the process that reflected. When they actually did the volunteering, then afterwards paused and processed that information, processed that experience, compared it in other work they did, thought about what it meant to them. Now it's meaningful. Something that was really interesting from your studies is that regarding Taproot, yeah. is that a lot of times people were volunteering, but maybe they weren't using their skills. Like, so say they were a lawyer, but they yeah. were like, I don't know, working in a soup kitchen or something. Sure. Yeah. So something that I've been meaning to ask you, and sure. I guess this is the right forum to do that, is that, I mean, it does make sense that they get a lot more fulfillment if they were performing legal work for that nonprofit Again, I'm going to play devil's advocate with yep. you is that I've got some friends that have done their skill set in for a nonprofit and they're like, well, I wanted to escape my skill set. It wasn't maybe that's where they were coming from is the problem, but I um, thought I would just throw that out there and get your perspective on that. I think we volunteer for a lot of different reasons. I think if you're looking at it from a capitalist standpoint of like what creates the most value, you want to basically be able to tap whatever the sort of highest value skill is of that person. So if you've got a lawyer who normally bills $1,000 an hour doing work that typically bills $12 an hour, you're basically losing all that value. But there are times when someone wants sort of something completely different to sort of shake them up, to think differently. One of my favorite stories that I wrote about in my book, The Purpose Economy, was about Mozilla. And Mozilla had this really interesting leadership development program that tied in volunteering, which at first I thought was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard, but then actually came to really appreciate. They were in San Francisco and they would get new leaders, put them in a van, drive down to Half Moon Bay, which is about half an hour down the coast. And they would drop them off, let's say at 9 a.m. And they said, go help people. We'll pick you up at five. Just think about like that experience, right? They're not using their skills. They're not being told like, here's how to go do it. You actually have to go out and have the vulnerability to say, I'd like to help you and get someone's permission 
right? Because when, typically when corporations volunteer, they've already pre-lined yeah, it, yeah, signed yeah. it up. A lot of those people would go to people and be like, how can I help you? And they'd be like, beat it. Like, well, I don't need your help. It like required like a totally challenging, uncomfortable situation that helped them push through a lot of um, like really big barriers for themselves. So I think there are times when volunteering, like you can do it for other things. For me, a lot of it came down to respect. I think nonprofits work so hard. And a lot of times companies will just be like, hey, we've got 50 people. We want to come down to your organization and volunteer for three hours on Thursday. And they think they're just being the nicest human beings in the world to offer that. But just for those of you that are like, you think about like running a business. So someone's like, I got 50 people that are coming by your office on Thursday at three and like make sure they feel like they made a big contribution in two hours. You'd be like, lock the doors, right? Like <laughs> yeah. hire a security guard, keep them out, right? Yeah. But then we expect like the nonprofits to like bend over and be like, oh my God, thank you so much. So to me, a lot of it was about the respect of saying, what do you actually need? And how can we meet that need? And when you ask nonprofits what they need from business is not sort of just general volunteering, they need help with capacity. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's so true. <laughs> I was actually just with a head of HR for a large organization that probably everyone knows. And she was telling me how frustrating it is. And I was hearing both sides because she thought that they were adding so much more value. She couldn't believe that the companies were giving her a hard time and giving her a lot of guidance on what they can do. And meanwhile, her perspective is like, well, we're giving you all these great people. Right. But to your point, well, you know, it's interesting. I always feel like people drop like 100 IQ points <laughs> when they're doing volunteering and they're thinking about it. Like when you hire new employees, it often takes weeks before they can add any value, yeah. right? And yet we sort of expect someone shows up in day one, first, second, they're adding value. It's just, it's like a leap of magical thinking around it. And I think there's another thing that's not healthy there is you find nonprofits need cash. So they think that by placating companies and having them feel like they're making an impact, they're likely to get a donation down the road. So they'll like tell this whole story about how great they are and how they're so helpful, but it's somewhat disingenuous. And it's basically, if we can have a more honest conversation, we can actually help people make a real difference and enable nonprofits to focus on what matters. There's a great story about a nonprofit in the DC area that has a room much like the one we're sitting in. And every time a company calls, they're like, we would love to come and volunteer. They're like, oh, thank God. We really need to paint this room that's in our office. Right now it's white, but we really need to make it yellow. Team comes in, they paint it, it's now yellow. Another company calls the next week. We really would love to come in and help you. Like, the room's yellow, we really need it to be pink. So basically, they just have these companies come through and repaint that same room over and over again just to keep them out of their hair. And I feel like that's a great sort of example of the dynamic. That's fantastic. Let's talk more about Imperative. Let's talk about some of the technology that you have, some of the organizations that you're working with, some of the results that have transpired. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we've been on this journey, as I shared earlier, just trying to really figure out how to make work fulfilling. And I don't think this is going to be a surprise to you, but what it came down to after five years of like just incredible investment in research and doing pilots with different companies, relationships are the core of fulfillment. Relationships are the thing that like we most need to be fulfilled, which is why actually in nonprofits, a lot of people are not fulfilled at work, even though it's doing this incredible cause because the relationships aren't there, right? And companies have gotten worse and worse at actually having authentic relationships in organizations. And social media has actually, I think, degraded relationships, not improved them. We need a new way to build relationships, to build trust, to build psychological safety. And what we're finding is that there's a really powerful way to do that that also helps with people with learning. And it's really around connecting people as coaches for each other. We found 90% of people are willing to coach each other at work and that people who coach each other way more fulfilled, way more effective in basically every measure. So if you've got an organization with 90% of your employees who are willing to be coaches, like how do you actually put that to work, right? I give the example like Airbnb. Airbnb didn't create more 
hotels. It didn't create a search engine to find more hotels. It saw empty rooms and it rented them out, right? What we're saying is 90% of your employees are sitting there wanting relationships, willing to coach others. Everyone's complaining about not growing enough, complaining about not having relationships. The answer is sitting there right now. But the challenge becomes, how do you take 10,000 employees and match them for these conversations, right? How the hell do you do that? And then most people have no idea how to coach. They don't have the skill set for it. How do you actually train them so that they can be effective coaches for their peers? And then it's a business. How do you measure whether or not it's working? How do you measure, how do you have outcomes, KPIs around that? So over the last five years, we've built the whole science around purpose profiling so we can understand what someone's intrinsic motivations are, what drives fulfillment for them, what is their current state of fulfillment. And this has actually unlocked an incredible new platform we've built that's enables you to match all the employees and the click of a button. They all take the profile, they set up the profile. We can match and know which people should be together, not based on the title, not based on seniority, but actually based on their psychological profile around purpose. And then we have a video coaching interface where you and I would be able to, over video, other sides of the world, be able to coach each other effectively because we actually provide prompts to each person saying this is the question to ask and it's personalized based on what we know about that other person. So we're not basically feeding the prompts to each person. So even if they have very low EQ, even if they don't intuitively know how to coach, it makes everyone a fantastic coach for their colleagues. And at the end of the conversation, we're able to have measurement to see whether or not it achieved those objectives. So we now for the first time have a technology platform that's possible now to match thousands of people enable them to have these sort of coaching relationships and start to build trust, to start to build real connection, but to also use the conversations to teach different core principles that are critical. So unconscious bias, incredibly mm, important. Yeah, we can have conversations team. about that now, right? Innovation, teamwork, all these things can be turned into pure coaching conversations on the platform and to be able to use our purpose profiling technology to make it possible to do this on like a massive scale. And this is really gonna be the future of learning we believe there's sort of basic learning around like functional or technical skills. But when it comes to power skills, when it comes to relationships, I love that. I call them durability skills. Sorry I like it. You no, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Anything yeah. but soft skills. Yeah. I, I hate oh, that hate, phrase. Me too. Don't get me started. Um, yeah. So when I mean, you ask like CEOs, like the things they care about are collaboration, innovation, inclusion. These things can't be taught in a class. They need to be taught socially and they need to be experiential. So three to four years from now, what you're going to see is companies using imperative around the world to really change their cultures. Cause we believe culture changes one conversation at a time. And if you're able to do that at that kind of scale, it's just so excited about what's going to happen. Yeah. So I'm sure you're familiar with this statistic or you probably know it better than me and can give me more color around it. But as a result of this peer coaching, you're going to, relationships are going to get deeper. Yeah. And as a result of that, it's really interesting. I believe there's something like people will stick around a company 45% longer if they have a good friend yeah. at work. Have you heard that? No, so, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, you basically think about, even when you have a bad day, what makes it still worth staying, it's the friendships, the relationships that you have. And imagine with pure coaching, and we've seen this in the outcomes, just sort of how it impacts people's comfort, bringing their full self to work. It affects their sense that they have someone in the organization that cares about them. It affects their sense of having clarity about what they want to do in their career. We've seen all these things from people who've used our, our platform. But to your point, it's like when you have that human connection, that's what makes work worthwhile. Even if you're doing tasks some days that are not your favorite, being part of a community, having real authentic relationships with people is just so vital. Tell me about some of the relationships that you've built. You know, you've a pretty interesting background. What did you do before? Ta so you graduated from Michigan. Yes. 
Walk me through the progression of your career. Yeah. So I mean, I started my first small business when I was 16. I did a lot of social entrepreneurial work at Michigan, doing a lot of work teaching in local prisons and creating a whole program around Michigan students going out and teaching, bringing different faculty. And so just incredible experience. And Michigan was so amazing that I had the flexibility and resources to do that. I went and worked in inner city education right out of school. And it was in Chicago and January hit. And I had a call from family in Palo Alto that was like, hey, why don't you just come out here? And I was like, yes. Um, So I went and worked in two early stage technology companies that both had sort of quasi social missions. They both, I was one of the top first 10 employees, both scaled over 200 people within two and a half years and was able to sort of be along for that ride, see how organizations scale. And that's really where the insights for Taproot came because I saw that it was about money, but actually a lot of what startups did to scale was they hired functional talent ahead of the need. Mm. So they would hire senior marketing people, senior tech people ahead of it because they expected to grow into it. And they knew they had to lay that out. Were these VC funded organizations? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Heavily they knew that, okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. But I think that was, the th- I was saying like nonprofits are hiring those people like way after they need them. Yeah. And there's like a fundamental talent issue there. So that's sort of what sparked that. But I just, I love creating organizations. I love seeing problems and trying to solve for them. And I think over your career, you find bigger and bigger problems to solve and more and more personal problems to solve. And with, I don't know if I've told you this story, but the, a lot of the inspiration for the current work we're doing with peer coaching actually comes from a, a very difficult personal experience I had, which about 25 years ago, right? Actually, as I was graduating college, my mother moved to San Miguel Allende, which is a small artist community in Mexico and lived there a couple of years. And at the age, I think she was about 48. She had a very small heart attack, a very like minor heart attack, drove herself to the hospital. The nurse was there. The nurse called the doctor. The doctor never showed up and my mother died. And it was because the two of them were in a fight and not getting along. So that relation, that lack of a relationship at work, you think about it often in the context of most work environments, you're like, so they don't get along. But when you put it in that context and you see what having dysfunctional relationships at work, the actual consequences of that. So a lot of what inspires me is like, how do we make sure that never happens again? How do we make sure that our relationships at work have the trust, have the psychological safety to make sure that like we're truly showing up with our values, that we're making sure that we're serving our customers or our patients? I think this is a broader problem in our society. There are so many problems with relationships. Yeah, to say the least. I mean, I'm still just digesting what you just shared with me. A ton of breakdowns, and it shows up. The relationships show up in so many different areas, whether it's the creativity, because a yep. lot of times people get stuck in like an echo chamber. Oh, totally. And people that have these good relationships, they stay with an organization at minimum two times longer than those who don't yep. have relationships. Usually it's three times. Yeah, that's right. They get better projects. They make more money. Yeah. They are happier. They yeah. typically find more fulfillment. What they also do is they recruit people into an organization. So they save the organization money yep. by not having to pay some of the fees. And the people that they recruit into the organization tend to be the same kinds of people that fall into it. So it's a real, yep. there's a domino effect. There's a cycle that goes on. Yeah. No, it's really like a, a very positive flywheel. It just gets. Sort of better flywheel. and better. Jim yeah. Collins era. There, there you go. go. That's a good one. A classic. Yeah. Did you read the flywheel? Of course. Did you, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, I think that's what you're looking for in a business. That's how you scale is you find things that accelerate. Don't just sort of stay static and relationships are an accelerant. Yeah. Yeah. So I've actually worked with a bunch of people that have worked with your organization yeah. and they are your biggest cheerleaders. Do you have any examples in that you're allowed to share in terms of organizations that have worked with your technology? I mean, we've got a wide range. Yeah. So I think it's everywhere from 
military. We've actually worked with the Navy, worked with the Office of Natural Resources and the government. Can I rewind yeah. in? So you've worked at the military. I would think that this would go against the grain a little bit of the military. Is that just my own ignorance or? Yeah, I think we have a lot of stereotypes about what different, like, yeah, I mean, you got to remember it's all yeah. human beings. And I think psychological safety in the military is like critical. If you don't have that, then there's all kinds of problems that can occur. I, right? I get that. But I mean, just the fact of in a lot of the military, it's, hey, there is a hierarchy sure. and hey, do this because I'm your boss. Yep. So I would think that that's somewhat counter to this or is that? Intuitively, I agree with what you're saying. I think yeah. you need to, Think about the fact the military has a big recruiting problem mm -hmm. and a big retention problem, just like any employer. And that generally is not well paid. It's incredibly stressful. It's away from family. So the need to create fulfillment, the need for people to like want to stay is like probably more severe than in most industries. So yeah. I think there is that drive. I think also a lot of the people who join the military and our officers are very purpose driven and they want sort of ways to be able to do that. I think our hardest challenge with them was actually more like, what do you have to teach us about purpose? Because hmm. Um, you see that. And I've, I've heard a lot from uh, vets. They left the military and they're like, I'll never have purpose again. And helping them sort of learn that you don't have to be in the military to have purpose and that you can create it for yourself and create yeah. that sense of meaning. That's yeah, really interesting. I actually just on uh, Monday was referred to somebody who's a Navy SEAL who used to actually and then went and was security for Obama. And now he's in yep. private and he is so he cannot find fulfillment. He's like a fish out of water. Yeah. Well, Send them my name. Send them my name. Send them my email. So I'm sorry. Yeah. So military, you were the military. Tell me. <laughs> yeah, so it's from that. Yeah. So like nonprofits like Care International. We worked with the YWCA for a while, just working with sort of a range of those organizations. And then we work with large corporations from Airbnb to Zillow to PwC, et cetera. Like we work with a lot of different organizations and have over time. I think people recognize this as the future of work. So if, if someone's listening right now and they're like, wow, this makes sense because yep. it makes sense. How do they learn more and who should they bring this? Is it, do they bring it to the head of their HR's attention? Absolutely. I mean, typically what we're seeing is a head of HR, a head of learning and development, someone who's really focused on career development and on culture as being the champion for it. So if it's something you'd want to bring into your organization, those are usually the best. We tend to find that there's opportunities to bring it as part of a manager training, leadership development, employee onboarding, career development programs, and a lot of change management as well. When you're doing change management, you want people to help process the change and feel ownership of it. Can Where, you explain? Yeah. Most people don't understand what change management is. So I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off, yeah. but I think it's important that that gets explained. I mean, at the simplest level, it's like you're walking one direction and the company decides they want to walk a different direction. And how do you get people to like understand like that's the direction you want to go in now and this is why and you got to bring all your stuff with you and create that motivation to create the sort of path for people and it's one of the main reasons business fails is that they know where they want to go but they're not able to actually manage that change and change is just accelerating and accelerating and accelerating careers are accelerating in terms of change the companies are and to manage that change you basically have to help each individual like take personal ownership of it and to build the psychological safety and trust to enable them to feel comfortable making that change. Because every change is scary. That's one of the things that I think actually really lends the most credence to what you're doing because of the massive amount of change that's going on. You yeah. know, I'm sure you're familiar with the future of work and sure. agility and all this kind of stuff. So by people having the relationships that you're helping them to develop with this peer coaching system, 
really helps give them a foundation and something to cling to that psychological safety that you're talking about yeah, and the relationships to go to it's like imagine yourself in a company you've done now peer coaching with say 10 different colleagues you've now got this whole network of people who are your champions mm. and that you can go to when you're, you know, have a question or want to talk something through you suddenly just have a support network that can help you through whatever that changes and to your point about the future of work there was a study by dell and the institute for the future i believe that found that by 2030 85 percent of the jobs then don't exist today. So you think about now a kid, you, know, you and I both have kids, it's, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, well, most of the things you can answer that question like won't exist. <laughs> we need a different way of thinking about careers and purpose creates a really nice way to do that because purpose is constant. The sort of specific skill areas or the specific functions are what change. And people who wed too much of their identity to a specific function are going to suffer the same sort of challenges that I think a lot of manufacturing, for example, in the Midwest, it really just clung sort of just were so fully like entrenched in that identity identity that's tied to something outside of you always puts you at risk of sort of falling behind so what are things that people could be doing right now to help think about purpose on a deeper level yeah i mean i know it's a broad question but is there anything in particular that you'd recommend is it a lens that they're looking through is it a mindset yeah i think first it's building your self-awareness about what fulfills you, right? And there's a lot of different ways of doing that. I think one of the most basic ways is, and sort of old school is just journaling. If you take two minutes every day and just write down like what were the things today that you found meaningful? I generally put it in three categories. What were the relationships today that were meaningful to you? What did you do today that you felt like was a value to someone else? And in what ways were you stretched? Did you grow today? And just do that for a couple of weeks and you'll start to see patterns emerge about what types of things, what types of people, and what environments are you finding that meaning? And then you can just look for more and more opportunities to do that. So that's, I think, the simplest way of doing that. What are your feelings on some of the self-awareness exams? I forgot who it is. There's a doctor. I forgot her name. I can send it. <laughs> okay. I can send it to you. But essentially what you do is you send your self-awareness to someone that knows you well. Yep. That you think is more often than not, people are very unaware yep. of even some of their intrinsic drivers. So sure. you send it to other people, there's this whole thing you can fill out all this criteria and it's amazing. First of all, it's a wake up call like, oh shit, am I really like this? And then yeah. secondly, it's you're like, oh man, it makes you think. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or are you familiar with any of these types of- Yeah, I mean, I, think there's, I mean, there's so many different yeah. tools out in the market for self-awareness. I think it's a question of what you want to have self-awareness on. Yeah. And there's different philosophies around this as well. So a lot of it's around personality, things like Myers-Briggs, insights that are about introvert versus extrovert. These things are important, but they're pretty shallow in terms of defining who you are. You're not defined by your introversion or extroversion. Some of them are more about your skills. So one of the most popular ones is Strength Finder, which is love about Strength Finder. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, love, I mean, I love it, but I think it also it treats us as human resources. It sort of says, okay, you're a Swiss Army knife. Like, let's find out if you have like a toothpick, some scissors, like a nail file versus this other person who's got two scissors and a toothpick. And then like, how do you be the best possible like toothpick you can be, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not actually about like value creation. It's about understanding you as a resource. So again, I get, it's a philosophy that goes behind that, right? And how you view yourself and how you view talent. What we really advocated for is more around purpose and like what is the impact that you want to make in the world how do you actually like to add value what are your values these are the things that are much more lasting and they tie much more to sort of who you are at your core the stuff that's often below the surface that matters and i think those people can help you see that in yourself but a lot of it takes the reflection to sort of think through what is the impact that i enjoy making do you feel that or have you noticed if people are self-aware and if so like how in tune they are it's all over the map right yeah. I think some people are very self-aware. A lot of people think they're self-aware. 
<laughs> a lot of people are not. Uh, a lot of people are sort of operating off of someone else's manual mm. instead of their own. But I think it is, it's that daily process of just reflecting on your day, even for just a couple of weeks, you'd be surprised how many insights you just pick up yourself. And with the peer coaching, so let's say you've worked with 10 different peers. Okay. Does your system keep you in touch with the 10 different people that well, you Well, they're people have? within your organization. So yeah. I mean, they're still there so and it's in your, you. your, your platform, your history. Our assumption is you're working with these people that are part of your broader mm-hmm. corporate environment. And you probably have more sophisticated ways of staying in touch with them that are tied to your sort of daily flow of work. But it keeps a log of the conversations you've had, all the notes, everything. So you can go back to them and reflect, et cetera. So there's, I mean, there's definitely a history there. Um, but we don't think we're like, we don't want to be the one replacing the sort of corporate portal that everyone's looking each other up in, et cetera. So, so is it more just for yourself or is there someone that sits above you that has an opportunity to read this information? For psychological safety, it's really critical that it's just for you. Yeah. So what happens if you and I are coaching each other, you're taking notes about what I'm saying, and then those notes are shared with me, and then I have that as a record, which forces you to do active listening because you actually have to listen to be able to write that, right? You stole my thunder because I was going to comment on that because I think that is a great piece. I know that the experience that I had, yeah. and, and mine was not via the web, it was in person, but I thought that that was excellent. It's a, I mean, I've tried it once without doing that, and I thought I was listening to somebody, but I realized I wasn't because then I went to write it down later. I'm like, actually, I... Remember the feeling I had when they were talking about it? I don't remember what they actually said. Yeah. And that act, that process, it makes the person feel great because they feel like you're honoring them and listening. Well, and, well that, that was the thing. It works. That was the thing too. So the last person that I did this with, this girl yep. was like, oh, wow, because she was saying one thing, yep. but I heard something different. Which is super valuable as well, right? Yeah. So that was interesting for both of us. Yeah. Because I didn't even realize that what she was saying was, again, because you hear, totally. it reminds me of that, I don't know if you remember Saturday Night Live, the Hans and Franz. Yeah, of course. You listen to me now and hear me later. <laughs> you know, or, you know? <laughs> so I kind of awesome. had that, yeah, that, that, yeah. That, that same feeling. So this is cool. So you've got a, you got a really cool mission going on. You've got a great staff. You're opening up lots of doors, doing lots of really cool things and moving the needle. How fulfilled do you feel? I feel really fulfilled. I mean, I think the relationship piece, as I said, was really critical. And there actually was a period of time in Imperative's history where that wasn't as strong. But it's really like, we've really invested in that. And that's made that much stronger for me. Explain. I think there's a different times you're sort of going through different pivots and sort of figuring out what you're doing as an organization. And there's different people you hire and some work and some don't. And they're often when you have sort of the wrong people on the team, it creates those issues. So it's just being able to really prioritize the right people that are there for the right reason. It's a good problem to have, but one of the problems being a social impact tech startup is you just have so many people that want to join the team, but not necessarily for the mission. They like generally interested in social impact or they want to be part of a startup, but that's different than actually being passionate specifically about what we do. Mm. I like to hire people where it's like, if they were to quit, they'd probably want to go do the exact same thing. Like they just care so much about what we're doing at this stage. And I think early on, we had some folks who were more just sort of want to be part of a startup or wanted to be part of social impact, but not that sort of specific piece. Yeah. And then we had some people who had a very strong sort of scarcity mindset, I realized, that made it really hard. It was sort of this constant anxiety in the organization. I find that just in general that most people have a scarcity mindset. What do you do to open that up and have them see the abundance? I don't know if I have a magic sort of yeah. answer. I think it's part of just being conscious about it. Mm-hmm. I think one of I was raised Buddhist, and I think part of it's letting go of outcomes to some degree. It's sort of like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen and how bad is that actually? I think a lot of times you can let go of that fear. You have to have that ability to feel like you can fail and that's okay. Uh, I think that's part of what's necessary. And you have to realize that there's so much more opportunity always out there. Um, The second you're fixing on this thing has to work, 
that's when you start getting into trouble. Yeah. So I think a lot of it's like letting go of that fear and letting go of like, a lot of it's doing work on like, what does it mean to be successful and who's defining that for you? What does it really mean to be successful? What do you really like fast forwarding 20 years? What's going to really matter about what you're doing right now? And then relationships. If you start getting in the mode of focusing on relationships first, you tend to move out of a scarcity mindset because you're focused more on someone else than yourself. Yeah. Which is again, why I think relationships are really the sort of pivotal piece. So let's talk about what do you do Walk me through your perspective on relationships. Obviously, they're important to you. What do you do to build them, nurture them? Are there any in particular that you have that stand out to you? And I'd love to hear why. I think I'm adapt. I think there's people who are on a continuum from like task to relationship. And I think that I am naturally more of a task-oriented person, but relationships where I want to be and what I know is best for me and best for everyone to be relationship-oriented. So I've had to take a much more sort of, not necessarily intuitive, but more adaptive approach to building relationships. I found with relationships, I like collaborating with people and doing things with people. So my relationships tend to be built around activity, not just sort of conversation. Are you an introvert? I am an introvert. Yeah. Are you a far introvert? No. no. Were you more like ambivert slash? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's situational. Like, sure. I mean, I, I love being on stage. I love being with large groups, but I tend to be someone who has a couple of sort of very close people that I'm working with. So I like to really collaborate and go deep with people versus having more shallow interactions. But I find sort of doing projects together, trying to create things together. I find that process of co-creation like a great source of relationship, Mm -hmm. but it's an ongoing journey for me. And I think being naturally more task oriented, it's like a constant process to sort of remind myself the tasks don't matter, like focus on the relationship or do the task with someone as part of that. And at what point did you realize the value of relationships? I don't know if it's like a moment like that. I think it's sort of a, like an ongoing journey. I think there was one moment actually at Taproot that was pretty funny where a colleague of mine in Chicago set up a meeting with an investor or a funder of ours. And I asked like, what's the agenda for the meeting? She's like, there is no agenda. And I was like, why are you wasting my time? Why would I go to a meeting without an agenda? And she's like, the agenda is a relationship and just to like connect. And I was like, that's a waste of time. Like, what are you talking about? But I went through and I had that discussion and nothing was accomplished and yet everything was accomplished. And I think that to me was like a really interesting sort of just wake up for me just to sort of see the relationship itself is yeah. of value. It doesn't have to have an output from it. Do you have any hard and fast rules on how long it takes for you to get back to somebody, whether it's an email or a text? I don't know that I would recommend my hard and <laughs> fast rule. I have a personal, it's almost like anxiety about ever holding someone back. Like I hate to be a bottleneck. So in general, like it's rare that I don't get back to someone within an hour or two, but I don't know if that's healthy. And I think well, uh, it's, it's funny. I'm sorry to cut you off, but no, so the people I try to ask that question a lot, whether on air or off, sure. but it's funny. So what I've noticed, and yeah. I, I don't, I, I should go back and start doing more of the stats on this, but I've noticed the kind of people that really make it yeah. like the top people, the, yeah. the CEOs, they get back to people within 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. And then you've got the people that kind of think they made it. The people that are, let's, I hate to poo poo, but like the, yeah. your quote unquote executives, yeah. let's call them that don't value those relationships as well. And they might take a week or two, or if at all. So it's really interesting to, I love asking that question. I think it's generally right. I can often tell whether or not I'm gonna be able to have a good relationship with someone just based on that response time, just because I operate in that sort of speed cycle. I don't know that at the end of the day, it's like the healthiest version. I think a lot of times we respond quickly, but not thoughtfully. Mm. So I think there's definitely like a downside to it. 
Well, what but about, is it a respect it, thing? The reason to do it or the- Yeah. Yeah. What is the reason like you're getting back? Is it, hey, I respect this person. I want to at least give them uh, some kind of response, even if it's, hey, I'll get back to you later, just so there's a sense of urgency. My conversation I consider is like a game of tennis. It's like the, someone hits a ball, you got to hit it back. And I think it's just keeping that emotion. I also am just a big believer in momentum. And I think the second you slow things down, like you lose that inertia. And I think much of what actually gets done in the world is done actually not through smarts, not through anything other than just pure inertia. A lot of big companies aren't doing that great of work, but just pure inertia moves that forward like a wave moves forward. And I feel like with a relationship, like I want to always feed that inertia, that sense of like energy. Because I think energy, which is part of inertia, is like it's so much of what a relationship's about is around that. My wife's very different than me on this. Like I respond quickly. She tends to not be, mm-hmm. she's much more successful than me in almost every way. I think she is very thoughtful when she responds to things. I do think there's like a difference, but I agree. I mean, the people that I've enjoyed working with most are always people who are very, very responsive people who are sort of always wanting to keep things moving forward and have a sense of urgency about them. Yeah. Yeah. Urgency. That's a good way of putting it. So what are things that in here we are, we're sitting here, this called the end of 19. Yeah. Um, what are we going to see the end of 2000 from imperative? What will you have accomplished? At the end of 2020 or something? Yeah. Or? The end of 2020. At the end of 2020, I mean, we're right now looking to raise like a major round of funding so that we can really scale this. I mean, we really has spent this time doing R&D trying to figure out like how do we fundamentally change the nature of work? How do we change the nature of relationships and lives? And we really figured that out. Now it's time to like put a bunch of money into that so that we can scale it to bring it to more organizations, make the platform stronger and stronger, start to sort of grow that more broadly. So end of 2020, I mean, I would expect us to be in a place where we've got several hundred organizations that are deploying pure coaching with imperative across their organization and starting to build it into the cadence of their business. Mm. So you're starting to see a key conversation maybe once a month that like everyone in the organization's having and creating this sense of synchronicity across the organization that you're seeing it part of all the key learning programs as how they're powering that process and that you're seeing it starting to become part of also how consulting firms, especially the boutique consulting firms, are supporting change management for their clients is they're using Imperative as a change management tool so that when you get your PowerPoint with the change management strategy, peer coaching is the way you bring that to actually to life so that everyone owns it. Have you thought about in- integrating this into uh, MBA programs? Yeah, we've done some work with MBA programs. I think K-12 and higher ed actually does a lot more peer coaching than businesses do. They're way ahead of the curve hmm. on this in general. I think a lot of schools have realized that actually teachers should be there as facilitators, but actually the peers are the ones that teach each other. That's more and more sort of the methodology in schools. So you see a lot of that starting to happen, which is really, really encouraging. I think MBAs absolutely, like it's a, a great yeah. place for it. And I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll start seeing some of our clients sponsoring the use of this in MBA programs as a way of building their brand and sort of connecting with uh, potential hires. See using it for, I want to use it for a lot of different social purposes. Like I'd love to be able to provide this to veterans coming out of the military to help them transition, support each other. I'd be so great for that. I'd like to be able to use it for new parents in the workplace that are sort of processing and you know, supporting each other through that process. I'd like to tie it to volunteering to help with the reflection around volunteering for new employees, for people retiring, trying to think about like, how do we support each other in this incredible life change? There's so many different uses for this that mm. I think our biggest challenge is just, we got to get the capital and we got to get the focus so that we can sort of realize that potential. Back to the audience for a second. Yeah. So people that, that are listening to this that want to be involved in some way, shape, or form, is there an opportunity? 
Yes. I guess it depends on what you... I don't know whether it's... Obviously, if you're very wealthy out there and you're listening, yeah. you can write a check. Of course, that's one. But or if you're in an executive level position and you want to bring imperative into the organization, yep. that could be another opportunity. Absolutely. I don't know if there are people that might be interested. Like if I was hearing this conversation, I'd be like, wow, how do I get involved in the mission? Because this isn't a job. This is a mission that you're yeah. on. This is the most exciting time in our history. And I think the people that are able to, that are out there that are interested in being part of this, this is the moment where you can be part of sort of a fundamental change in companies, a fundamental change in society. And I think also be part of something that's going to be a very valuable company because it's going to be at the core of how so many organizations work in the coming years. So absolutely, if you're looking for a smart, socially oriented investment, there's an opportunity to get in really at the early stages of that. A really exciting opportunity. If you're an organization and you really want to be a pioneer in this and help us build this in your organization and learn with us and help make this better and be part of that, like love to hear from you. If you're a consultant and you're looking at ways to really expand your impact with your clients, love to talk to you about how we might integrate this. If you're an author and you're like, I want people to be able to process my book after they read it and actually talk about it with other people. Let's talk about how we could create peer coaching around your books so that those it's can an be interesting used. Interesting spin. Yeah, well, I mean, you just think a good about point. Like, no, yeah, I didn't even think about it's it. It's like a book club, right? Yeah, yeah. Book of club of two. Um, but you can start to like actually picture like on our platform if you read a given book. We were talking earlier about Adam Grant's give and take. Yeah. So you read that book. Let's pair you with someone and ask some specific questions that help you process and activate that learning. Because mm. when we just read a book, we don't typically remember it. No. There's sort of a half-life of learning where every week you're basically losing half of what you learned until it almost goes to nothing. Yeah. If you for can me, sort it's of like build a day. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? I was being generous with myself. <laughs> Seconds yeah. probably for me. Yeah. There's so much potential, I think, for that. I'm also very interested. Is anyone out there who's like philanthropically oriented, who works with vets and be interested in sponsoring a real pilot around this for vets through uh, an organization that's doing work there or another population where you think peer coaching could really impact people's lives? Like, would love to hear from you. We need to sort of build stronger relationships. And if there's someone out there with an incredible amount of money and power, my fantasy is I want to get every Republican and every Democrat in a peer coaching conversation with each other to figure out that they're actually both human beings with very similar values, very similar dreams, and that it's just a bunch of monkeys out there that have been yelling in our ears, telling us a bunch of garbage, telling us that we're different when we're not different. So that, that would be my fantasy. It's like if we can, before 2020 election, like get every single person in this country in a peer coaching conversation with someone who doesn't vote like they do and to start to actually stop vilifying, but actually humanizing everyone else. I do think that if we got everyone to do a handful of these conversations, like it would change our democracy. I, that's uh, really interesting. And, and it made me just think, so uh, diversity and inclusion is a huge topic of conversation these yep. days in a lot of these organizations. And I can see this from an inclusion standpoint. Care to elaborate on how yep. this might be, how you might be able to integrate this into There's that? so many different pieces. I think one yeah. is what we're finding is the modern workplace is at its best when it's much more female than male. I think our traditional work environment has been designed by sort of the white male sort of profile. I think mm -hmm. the things we're finding actually matter now actually are things that are much more traditionally like female oriented. So to build a culture in which I think women are going to thrive and where a lot of what's incredible traditionally about women who are very, tend to be more relationship oriented than men in general, there's mm -hmm. like million exceptions. This is a great way of building a workplace where actually women are thriving. And I think especially in the tech industry where that's just not the case, like incredible opportunity there. I think the second piece is there's a great, I forget his name, is at Michigan State University, which is probably why I forgot it because I'm a U of M guy. But this great Big guy. Ohio State fan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's it. I won't get started. That's another two hours. Yeah. So his point was we don't have a diversity problem. We have a lack of curiosity problem. 
mm. in our country. People are actually more curious about each other and more comfortable with psychological safety is like asking questions of each other and not being as offended, but just willing to like have real conversation. Like that actually would do way more than talking about diversity and inclusion. Let's just start talking about curiosity. So I think helping create peer coaching where people show curiosity and learn about each other will actually, well, not even talking about diversity and inclusion affect those kind of outcomes. I would also say one of the reasons diversity and inclusion has failed is it's not inclusive itself. That's one of my biggest points, yeah. by the way. So I do workshops on yeah. and I do stuff on inclusion. And that's actually one of the, my driving points. So I'm sorry to steal your thunder. No, 100%. Over, over, yeah. Can and you elaborate on that? Because it'd be great to hear from somebody well, I mean, else. First of all, like yeah. for I'm a white guy. When I go into those conversations, you sort of go in with a certain expectation and a certain degree to which your guard is up and sort of like, ah, like it's like going to the doctor, right? Like you just sort of like, I know I need to do it, but I don't really want to do this, right? I think to really talk about diversity and inclusion, especially inclusion in an effective way, I think we've got to start off with a topic around diversity and inclusion that's not specific to a specific class, race, gender. And that's where I think purpose is a great place to start. So if you and I get purpose from different things, let's talk about that diversity because everyone has it. It's totally safe. You can't say one's better than another. Let's start having those conversations about diversity and inclusion outside of the politically charged topics and through that build the muscle to then be able to move into those other topics. I think that's really the key. So the work we're doing around it is really around how do you just build those dialogues? And then to also realize that the person sitting next to you, who may be a different color, different sexual orientation, different gender, different nationality, may have more in common with you at a purpose level than someone who looks exactly like you. And if we don't have the right conversations, we'll never realize that because we're scared to have that conversation. We just assume that they're that they're so different. So those are one of my biggest points that I try to make is to look yep. through, you know, let's find the commonality, things that are on our deeper level. We'll yep. start there. That's the lens we're going to look through. Yeah. There's a fun exercise that uh, I think, uh, I forget who it was you shared with me, but where they just basically give people five minutes and you have to find as many things that you have in common as possible in five minutes. It's sort of a contest in a room. I, I do the exact. It's, yeah. It's, it's a great, I mean, it's just a great exercise. And it's amazing because you can't, so then the next thing, the next part of that exercise, yep. at least what I do is then, then find the difference. And the list I actually give a list of, to make it easier, like yeah. of, of all these different things that you fill out. Is it, do you have it in common? And then it's, I should probably have the numbers, but it's, it's like two, it's over two thirds yep. of things that you have in common versus that you don't. Yep. No, it's so many things. Yeah. I, one of the big ahas for me was the first time I traveled abroad to Europe and just realizing like, I thought of myself as so different within the context of the US, but the second you go to Europe, you realize like just being an American in and of itself is like, gives you so much more in common with so many people. I think a lot of these things, I'm like thinking about those common experiences, but purpose is great because it's non-judgmental. It celebrates the best in everyone. It's not about differences, the things that hold you back. It's all about celebrating you as a hero, yeah. celebrating you as your heroic potential. And that just makes everyone sort of lifted up together. Yeah, well, you're focusing on something positive. Yeah. So I know we're a little tight on time, but I got some random questions and I'm going to let favorite. I'm going to, I'm going to let you be the steward behind these. Let's see. Uh, one through 16. 45. Perfect. <laughs> what do you want me to throw? What, what does it mean to steward this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> give, give, give me a number. One to, one to uh, one, seven. Seven. Let's go. Uh, how has your life turned out different than you had anticipated or expected it to have been at this point in your life? I, mean, I think the biggest parts of that, I mean, like I married a woman that like is so out of my league and is just so incredible <laughs> that I never would have expected like when I was younger, just off the charts in every single dimension, just so amazing. I assume my kids would be as problematic as I am as human beings. And yet they're both these like remarkable people that I just admire so much. And I just like every time I look at them, it just makes me smile and just feel so much gratitude for them. 
living in Seattle, never would have expected living in Seattle, never would have like crossed my mind. Like I never would have like even like occurred to me that that would be where I'm living right now. So many things. Okay, cool. All right. Now I got a question for you. One through 12. Give me a number. Three. What's the most effective relationship that you have had and what makes it so effective and how did you develop it? And spouses don't count. Does my dog count? Maybe. I have a very, I, my dog's pretty clear because he knows, I know what his needs are. Yeah. The ball, the walk, <laughs> the food. Yep. And What's his purpose? Yeah. <laughs> chasing balls. Yeah. It turns okay. out. I don't know the most effective. I don't know that I could. Let me each ask of them have the, yeah. Yeah. Or let me ask you this. Do you have a go-to person? Is there one person, again, no family allowed in this answer. Is there a go-to person that you have, whether it's a business question, whether it is a personal question, whether it's something that you're just down and out or just someone that you want to share something that's really exciting? I'm going to go with no. No. Do you have one for each? Or it's do you, situational or that, and like what's it's, going on. Yeah. And I'm not supposed to say family. My sister is like a major, plays a major role in my life. And she's often one of the first people I go to just because I admire her so much. And she just brings a wisdom and perspective and has known me for so long. Do you have a close group of friends? I do. I think in New York, I've got somewhat of a close group of friends, but I don't think like, not like the way a lot of people do where they have friends when they were little, that they sort of go to beers with regularly all yeah. the time. I think because I've moved around so much starting at a very young age, it's been much more sort of as I move, there's like different relationships that sort of yeah. come and go. So it's really interesting. So there was a study in, oh man, I forgot the name of the study. In the 80s, they say the uh, average person had, you should have at least three close confidants that mm -hmm. you should have outside of the family. You should have yeah. three close confidants. And I think in the 80s, it was like five. The average person had five. Do you know what that number is today? As a society? Yeah. They should and have. I'm, they I'm going, and have. I'm going average. I'm the, know what people have. So they said. A so, Facebook friend does not count. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So you should have three. So there should be yeah. like three people that you can have, that you can call, right. that you can be candid with, yeah. that you can ask a question. I would hope and, that, I mean, I'd be surprised if it was much higher than one. It's actually less than one. Yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. I mean, it's amazing just how much that's yeah. like how we started this conversation off. You know, again, we're the most technically connected we've ever been, but we're the least connected. Well, we're working more. We're changing jobs more often. Both spouses are working and working like, like there's just the amount of space in our lives for that kind of like downtime. There's that. And then the one thing that you, so all those three are the are yep. primary reasons for that. And then the social media that gives you, makes you feel that you're less than you are, mm -hmm. I think is the other thing that really drives less people. Connected uh, than you well, are or less? No, no, no. Less of a person. Because you're only seeing what people's highlights. Got it. So you're saying, hey, you're seeing that right. great trip that Aaron just took. The or, one photo right before you threw up. Yeah. You're eating <laughs> the great meal. Yeah. yeah. They didn't see the three layovers yeah, no, and all that. So yeah, those, but that's again, getting back to why people need to find their purpose. Yep. You know, they need to get connected to things. I mean, you and I were talking at lunch about loneliness. Yeah. I'd love if, if you don't mind kind of, I don't know how we missed this in this conversation, but if you don't mind kind of sharing your sentiments on loneliness. Well, I think people are deeply lonely now. I mean, we found in our study, 50% of people don't have meaningful relationships at work spending their time there. I think marriages and relationships are less and less intimate because people are busy, distracted, et cetera. I mean, you see it also just in like actual physical intimacy, like in the millennial generation, it's far less sex than any other generation. Is that so? Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, it's just like people are just like, there's just a lack of closeness between people and we just biologically need that. I mean, it's just at a very core basic level, like that's something we are wired to need and we're not having that need met and it just, it causes chemical reaction yeah. you know, that actually causes you to go into depression, which starts to spiral. We're doing work right now with a school district and they're looking at like, can purpose be a way to help people 
sort of break free of opioids, break free of medications for depression, et cetera, because a lack of fulfillment, a lack of purpose, a lack of relationships is what's causing a lot of the mental health issues, I believe, in this country and around the world. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. So the you know who Johan Hari is? He's a guy who wrote the book on Chasing the Scream. And I don't think so. Oh, he's fascinating, cool. by the way, really. If you're right doing on. stuff on yeah, that, I'll, yeah, I'll, I, would, I think you'd really like him. But essentially, it's lack of connection. That's the biggest issue when it comes down to people that are drug addicts. It's oh, proven that it's not chemical. Was this the guy I gave the talk? It was a, a TED talk about showing like there's no such, I think his point was like there's no such thing as addiction. There's like lack of purpose. That sounds like him. I yeah. didn't I didn't see it, yeah. but but I'm going to bet that that is him. Yeah, yeah, so it's not the there is a small percent of people that sure. are chemically addicted, like that is real yeah. and genes kind of everyone says, Oh yeah. well, I got alcoholism in my family. Guess what? Everybody does. Yeah. You know, that's not it. It's the majority of is that they don't have a purpose, they do not feel fulfilled, and they are not connected. I mean, there's no doubt like that's I mean, I don't know what ratios they are. There's no doubt these things like there's interplay there. I don't want to minimize like the suffering and minimize like no. how hard that is and Someone sounds trite, like just find your purpose and like you're not gonna, <laughs> yeah. you can sort of drop your habits, etc. But it is, it's when you have hope and a sense of wanting to get from here to there, you don't want to get anything in the way and you sort of therefore are able to focus that way. All right, 17 to 59. I can do 45 now. You got your 45. I was gonna just go with it. What were you hoping that I would have asked you today that I haven't? I don't know that I have like a specific thing. I don't, I wasn't sitting here sort of hoping for a specific outcome <laughs> okay. or a uh, specific sort of ability to articulate something specific. I just really enjoy being present in the conversation with Great. you. And I think wherever conversations go is where they're meant to go. Perfect. Last question before I let you leave. One through 14. 11. If you could be one age for the rest of your life, what would it be? The thing that's interesting about that question is like remembering what I actually was at that age versus being that I think age. that's a brutal question. It's amazing though how many people have an answer for that though. I ask that just randomly sometimes too, just when I'm meeting someone, just because it sometimes gives insight. So it's yeah. like a random question. My, I'm gonna I'm gonna spin it back to you in a different sort of version of it, yeah. which is what do you think your sort of timeless age is? Like if your personality, who you are, like what age is your like Ooh, that's is a, your like I'm gonna write that one down age. actually. So what would My you are you a twelve year old? Are you an eighty year old, a forty year old like your personality. Oh, wow. Man, I, it would probably somewhere in my early 20s, actually, yeah. I think is, is more sort of defining. Who you are. I think they're more defining. Yeah. Is that answering your question? Yeah, your I mean, it's questions? sort of like your personality. Like, I know people who, even From when they were 12 or like 80, yeah. right? You know, this could be that self-awareness that we talked about. Yeah. Like, I'm saying, hey, it's the 20s, but I could be so unaware yeah, yeah. where maybe that question would be, that would be something that I throw back to some of my confidants to say, yeah. hey, what do you think? You've hung around me a lot. What was the defining age that you feel most defines who I am? So yeah. I, I, you think it's easier to sort of think about some of your friends and you think about like, what is their natural, like spiritual age almost, right? Yeah. And you sort of see people who are, no matter how old they get, they're always 12. Yeah. <laughs> and you get people who are like, even at their youngest ages are always sort of that sort of older. I think for me, it's the age I am now, I feel like is sort of who I am and who I've that, always that been. You've always the been, late forties, yeah. like mid forties is sort of who I was as a kid. It's sort of who I probably will stay that age. But I think from your original question, my kids are the most important thing to me. And I love the age they are now, but I also really miss sort of when they were smaller, spent more time together. So I was trying to calibrate my answer less to do with my age and more to do with their age. Yeah. And just wanting to like enjoy what I still can in terms of having them as part of the household. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, with me, the kids, we, so our kids are the same age or every phase. Actually that first year was brutal, but yeah. after that, 
it just keeps getting better. But to your point, yeah, again, they're going to fly the coop. Yeah. Well, and I love, I'm, I'm a very immature human being in a lot of ways. And Excellent. I, I love the, like, when they were like 18 months, two years, three years, like, I feel like I could really relate to them. So at some <laughs> level, I, I, I think I am still like a two or three year old in that sense. Yeah. Um, I'm just screwing around and like being silly, which as they get older, they're embarrassed by, but that was that's good. very fun age. That's what keeps your young spirit. I guess that's right. 45 going on too. Yeah. I love that. Aaron, <laughs> I really, unless there's anything else that we no, haven't covered, I, I want to let you get your flight. I really appreciate you coming in. It's a lot of fun. It took a year to make happen, but it was worth the wait. I'm excited about what you guys are doing. I think that it's just, you're really moving the needle. There's one of the few, I think you guys are cutting edge and you really, you are trendsetters and I, I wouldn't be surprised. Here we are and let's call it 2019 and I don't even think it's going to take you guys five years to really cascade throughout a lot of organizations. So I wish you the best of luck. And I'm looking, a lot forward, coming from you. I'm looking forward to playing this in a few years. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to networkwise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise. <laughs>